Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fotations Live to Tape podcast. We're continuing our story, uh, our book of the Junior Classics, Volume 1, Fairy and Wonder Tales. And I'm going to pick up from where we left off, starting a new story, The Fair One with the Golden Locks, retold by Miss Moloch. There was once a king's daughter so beautiful that they named her the Fair One with Golden Locks. These golden locks were the most remarkable in the world, soft and fine and falling in long waves down to her very feet. She wore them always thus, loose and flowing, surmounted with a wreath of flowers, and though such long hair was sometimes rather inconvenient, it was so exceedingly beautiful, shining in the sun like ripples of molten gold, that everybody agreed she fully deserved her name. Now there was a young king in the neighboring country, very handsome, very rich, and waiting nothing but a wife to make him happy. He heard so much of the various perfections of the fair one with golden locks, that at last, without even seeing her, he fell in love with her so desperately that he could neither eat nor drink, and resolved to send an ambassador at once to demand her in marriage. So he ordered a magnificent, equipped more than a hundred horses and a hundred footmen, in order to bring back to him the fair one with golden locks, who, he never doubted, would only be too happy to become his queen. Instead, he felt so sure of her that he refurnished his whole palace and had made all the dressmakers of the city dress enough to last the lady a lifetime. But alas, when the ambassador arrived and delivered his message, neither the princess was in bad humor or the other did not appear to be to her taste, for she returned her best thanks to his majesty, but said she had not the slightest wish to or intention to get married. She also, being a prudent damsel, declined receiving any of the presents which the king had sent her, except that, not quite to offend his majesty, she retained a box of English pins, which were in that country of considerable value. When the ambassador returned, alone and unsuccessful, all the court was very much affected. The king himself began to weep with all his might. Now there was in the palace household a young gentleman named Avent, because beautiful as the sun, besides being at once so admirable and so wise that the king confided to him in all his affairs, and everyone loved him except those people to be found in all courts who were envious of good fortune. These malicious folk, hearing him say gaily, If the king had sent me to fetch the fair one with golden locks, I know she would have come back with me, repeated the saying in such a manner as if it, as if Avent thought so much of himself and his beauty, and felt sure the princess could have followed him all over the world, which, when it came to the ears of the king, as it was meant to do, irritated him so much that he commanded Avent to be imprisoned in a high tower and left to die there of hunger. The guards accordingly carried off the young man, who had quite forgot about his idle speech and had not the least idea what fault he had committed. They ill-treated, they ill-treated him very much, and they left him with nothing to eat and only water to drink. 
This, however, kept him alive for a few days, during which he did not cease to complain aloud, and to call upon the king, saying, O king, what harm have I done? You have no subject more faithful than I. Never have I had a thought of which could offend you. And so it befell that the king coming by chance, or else with a sort of remorse, past the tower was touched by the voice of the young Evan, who had, who he had once so much regarded. In spite of all the courtiers could do to prevent him, he stopped to listen and overheard these words. The tears rushed into his eyes, and he opened the door of the tower and called Avent. Avent came, creeping feebly along, and fell at the king's knees and kissed his feet. O oh, sire, what have I done that you should treat me so cruelly? You have mocked me, do, mocked me and my ambassador, for you said, If I had sent you to fetch the fair one with golden locks, you would have been successful and brought her back. I did say it, and it was true, replied Avent fearlessly, for I should have told her so much about your majesty and your various high qualities, which no one so well as myself, that I am persuaded she would have returned with me. I believe it, said the king, with an angry look at those who had spoken ill of his favorite. He then gave Avant a free pardon, and took him back with him to the court. After supplied the famished youth with as much supper as he could eat, the king admitted to him admitted him to a private audience, and said, I am as much in love as ever with the fair one with golden locks, so I will take thee at thy word, and send thee to try and win her for me. Very well, please your majesty, replied Avent cheerfully, I will depart tomorrow. The king, overjoyed with his willingness and hopefulness, would have furnished him with a still more magnificent equipage and suit than his first ambassador, but Avent refused to take anything except a good horse to ride, and letting a letter of introduction to the princess's father, the king embraced him and eagerly saw him depart. It was on a Monday morning when, without any prompt or show, Avent thus started on his mission. He rode slowly and meditatively, pondering over every possible means of persuading the fair one with golden locks to marry the king, but even after several days' journey toward her country. No clear project had entered into his mind. One morning, when he had started at break of day, he came to a great meadow with a stream running through it, along which were painted willows and pollards. It was such a pleasant rippling stream that he dismounted and sat down on its bank. There he perceived gasping on the grass a large golden carp, which in leaping too far against gnats, had thrown itself quite out of water, and now lay dying on the green ward. Avent took pity on it, and though he was very hungry, and the fish was very fat, and he would well enough have liked it for his breakfast, still he lifted it gently and put it back into the stream. No sooner had the carp touched the fresh, cool water than it received and swam away. But shortly returning, it spoke to him from the water in this wise. Avent, I thank you for your good deed. I was dying and you saved me. I will recompense you for one day. After this pretty little speech, the fish popped down to the bottom of the stream, according to the habit of a carp, leaving Avent very astonished, as was natural. Another day he met the raven that was in great distress, being persuaded by an eagle, which would have swallowed him up in no time. 
See that haven't how the stronger oppress the weaker. What right has the eagle to eat up the raven? So taking his bow and arrow with which he always carried, he shot the eagle dead, and the raven delighted perched on this the safety of the opposite tree. Avant, screeched he, though not in the sweetest voice in the world, you have generously succorned me, my a poor miserable raven. I am not ungrateful, and I will recompense you one day. Thank you, said Avent, and continued his road. Entering a thick wood so dark with the shadows of early morning that he could scarcely find his way, he heard an owl hooting, like an owl in great tribulation. She had been caught by the net spread by bird catchers to entrap finches, larks, and other small birds. What a pity, thought the Avent, that men must always torment poor birds and beasts whom they have done them no harm. So he took out his knife and cut the net and let the owl go free. She went sailing up in the air, but immediately returned hovering over his head with her, her brown wings. Event, she said, at daylight the bird catcher would have been here, and I would have been caught and killed. I have a grateful heart, and I will recompense you one day. These were the three principal adventures that befell the Avent on his way to the kingdom of the fair one with golden locks. Arrived there, he dressed himself with the greatest care, in a habit of silver brooch and a hat adorned with plumes and scarlet and white. He threw over all a rich mantle and carried a little basket in which was a lovely little dog and offered of respects to the princess. With this, he presented himself at the palace gates where even though he came alone, his mien was so dignified and graceful, so altogether charming, that everyone did him reverence, and was eager to run and tell the fair one with golden locks that Avent, another ambassador from the king, her suitor, awaited an audience. Advent, replied the princess, that is a pretty name. Perhaps the youth is pretty too. So beautiful, said the ladies of honor, that while he stood under the palace window, we could do nothing but look at him. How silly of you, sharply, how silly of you, sharply said the princess, but she desired them to bring her a robe of blue satin to comb out her long hair and adorn it with the freshest garland of flowers to give her high-heeled shoes and her fan. Also, she added, take care that my audience chamber is well swept and that my throne well dusted, I wish everything to appear as becomes the fair one with golden locks. This done, she seated herself on the throne of ivory and ebony and gave orders for her musicians to pay, play, but softly so as to not disturb conversation. Thus shining in all her beauty, she admitted Advent to her presence. He was so desolate that at first he could not speak. Then he began to deliver began and delivered his harnessed perfection. Gentle Advent, returned the princess, after listening to all his reasons for him returning all his reasons for her returning with him, your arguments are very strong, and I am inclined to listen to them. But you must find for me a ring which I dropped onto the river about a month ago. Until I recover it, I can listen to no proposal of marriage. Effet, surprised and disturbed, made her a profound reverence and retired, taking with him the basket and the little dog, Caroni, which she refused to accept. All night, 
long, he sat, sighing to himself. How can I ever find a ring which she dropped into the river a month ago? She has set me an impossibility. Dear Master, said Caboni, nothing is impossible to one so young and as charming as you are. Let us go at daybreak to the riverside. Aven patted him, but replied nothing, until worn out with grief, he slept. Before dawn, Carboni wakened him, saying, Master, dress yourself, and let us go to the river. The advent walked up and down, with his arms folded and his head bent, but saw nothing. At last he heard a voice calling from a distance, Avent, Avent. The little dog ran to the waterside. Never believe me again, Master, if it is not a golden carp with a ring in its mouth. Yes, Avent, said the carp. This is the ring which the princess has lost. You saved my life in the willow meadow, and I have recompensed you. Farewell. Avent took the ring gratefully and returned to the palace with Cabroni, who scampered about in great glee. Craving an audience, he presented the princess with her ring and begged her to accompany him to his master's kingdom. She took the ring and looked at it and thought she was surely dreaming. Some fairy must have assisted you, fortunate Avent, said she. Madam, I am only fortunate in my desire to obey your wishes. Obey me still, she said graciously. There is a prince named Galfron, whose suit I have refused. He is a giant as tall as a tower, who eats men as monkeys and eats a, eats mans as monkeys eat nuts. He puts cannons <coughs> He puts cannons in his pocket instead of pistols, and when he speaks his voice is so loud that everyone near him becomes deaf. Go fight him and bring me his head. Event was thunderstruck, but after a time he recovered himself. Very well, madam, I shall certainly perish, but I will perish like a brave man. I will depart at once to fight the great Galfron. The princess, now in her turn, surprised and alarmed, tried every persuasion to induce him not to go, but in vain. Event armed himself and started, carrying his little dog in its basket. Calbron was the only creature that gave him consolidation. Courage, master. While you attack the giant, I will bite his legs. He will stop down to strike me, and then you can knock him on the head. Event smiled at the little dog spirit, but he knew it was useless. Arrived at the castle of Galfron, he found the road all sown with bones and carcasses of men. Soon he saw the giant walking. His head was level with the greatest trees, and he sang in a terrible voice. Bring me babies to devour, more, 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 men and women tender and tough, all the world's hold is not enough. To which Avent replied, imitating the tune, Avent you here may see, he is coming to punish thee, he be tender, be, be he tough, to kill the giant, he is enough. Hearing these words, the giant took up his massive club, looking around for the singer and perceiving him would have slain him on the spot, had not a raven sitting on the tree close by suddenly flown out upon him and picked out both his eyes. Then Avent easily killed him and cut off his head, while the raven watching him said, You shot the eagle who was pursuing me. I promise to recompense you, and today I have done it. We are quits. No, it is I who am your debtor, Sir Raven replied Avent, as having a frightful head to his saddle bow, he mounted his horse and rode back to the city of the fair one with golden locks.
There everyone followed him, shouting, Here is a brave Avent, who killed the giant, until the princess, hearing the noise, and fearing that it was Avent himself who was killed, appeared all trembling, and even when he appeared with Gelfron's head, she trembled still, although she had nothing to fear. Madame, said Avent, your enemy is dead, so I trust you will keep, you will accept the hand of the king, my master. I cannot, replied she thoughtfully, unless you first bring me a file of water from the Grotto of Darkness. It is six leagues in length, and guarded by the entrance by two fair, fairy dragons. Within it is a pit full of scorpions, lizards, and serpents, and at the bottom of this place flows the fountain of beauty and health. All who wish in it become, if ugly, beautiful, and if beautiful, beautiful forever, if old, young, and if young, young forever. Judge then, Evan, if I can quit my kingdom without carrying with me some of this miraculous water. Madam, replied Avent, you are already so beautiful that you require it not, but I am unfortunate ambassador whose death you desire. I will obey you, though I know I shall never return. So he departed with his only friend, his only friends, his horse, and his faithful dog, Calbron. While all who met him looked at him compassionately, pitying so pitying a youth bound on such a hopeless errand, but however kindly they addressed him, Avent rode on, answering nothing, for he was too sad at heart. He reached a mountain side where he sat down to rest, leaving his horse to gaze, Cabron to run after the flies. He flew, he knew that the grotto of darkness was not far off, yet he looked about him like one who was seeing nothing. At last he perceived a rock as black as ink, whence came a thick smoke. In the moment appeared one of two dragons, breathing out flames. It had a yellow and green body, claws, and a long tail. When Calbron saw the monster, the poor little dog hid himself in terrible fright. But Avant resolved to die bravely, so taking his file, which the princess had given him, he prepared to descend into the cave. Calbron, said he, I shall soon be dead. Then fill this file with my blood, and carry it to the fair one with golden locks, afterward to the king my master to show him that i have been faithful to the last while he was speaking a voice called event event and he saw the owl sitting on the hollow tree said the owl you cut the net in which i was caught and i vowed to recompense you now is the time give me that vial and i know every corner of the grotto of darkness and i will fetch you that water of beauty Delighted beyond words, Avent delivered his file. The owl flew with it into the grotto, and in less than half an hour reappeared, bringing it quite full and well corked. Avent thanked him. Avent thanked her with all his heart, and joyful took once more the road to the city. The fair one with golden locks had no more to say. She consented to accompany him back with all her suit to his master's court. On the way hither she saw so much of him, and found him so charming that Avent might have married her himself had he chosen, but he would not have been false to his master for all the beauties under the sun. At length they arrived at the king's city, and the fair one with golden locks became the spouse and queen, but she still loved Avent in her heart, and often said to the king, her lord, But Avent, I should not be here 
Has he done all sorts of impossible deeds for my sake? He has fetched me the water of beauty, and I shall never grow old and short. I owe him everything. And she praised him in this sort of way so much at length that the king became jealous, and though event gave him not the slightest cause of offense, he shut him up in the same tower once more, but with irons on his hands and feet, and the cruel jailer besides, who fed him with bread and water only. His sole companion was his little dog, Cabriolet. When the fair one with golden locks heard this, she reproached her husband for his ingratitude, and then, throwing herself at his knees, implored that event might be set free. But the king only said she loves him, and refused her prayer. The queen entreated, entreated no more, fell into a deep melancholy. When the king sighed, he thought she did not care for him because he was not handsome enough, and that if he could wash his face in her in, with her beauty, her water of beauty, it would make her love him the more. She knew that she kept it in a cabinet in her chamber where she could find it always. Now it happened that a wanting maid in clearing out this cabinet had the very day before knocked down the vial which was broken into a thousand pieces and all the contents were lost. Very much alarmed, she remembered seeing in the cabinet belonging to the king a similar vial. This she fetched and put it in the place of the other one in which was a water in which was the water of beauty but the king's vial contained the water of death it was a poison used to destroy great criminals that is noblemen gentlemen and such like instead of hanging them or cutting off their heads like common people they were compelled to wash their face with this water upon which they fell asleep and woke no more so it happened that the king taking up this vial believing it to be the water of beauty washed his face with it fell asleep and died Cabriolet heard the news, and gliding in and out among the crowd which clustered round the young and lovely widow, appeared softly to her, Madame, do not forget poor event. If she had been disposed to do so, the sight of his little dog would have been enough to remind her of his many sufferings and his great fidelity. She rose up, without speaking to anyone, and went straight to the tower where event was confined. There, with her own hands, she struck off his chains, and putting a crown on his golden head and a purple mantle on his shoulders, said to him, Be king and my husband. Avant could not refuse, for in his heart he had loved her all the time. He threw himself at her feet, and then, <coughs> and then took crown and scepter, and ruled her kingdom like a king. All the people were delighted to have him as their sovereign. The marriage was celebrated in an imaginable prompt, and Avent and the fair one with golden locks lived and reigned happily together all their days. Beauty and the Beast by M. Malloy, M. D. Malloy There was once a very rich merchant who had six children, three boys and three girls. As he was himself a man of great sense, he spared no expense for their education. The three daughters were all handsome, but particularly the youngest indeed. She was so beautiful that in her childhood everyone called her the little beauty, and being equally loved when she was grown up, nobody called her by her any other name, which made her the sister made her sisters very jealous of her. The youngest daughter was not only more handsome than her sisters, but also was better tempered. The two eldest were vain of their wealth and position. They gave themselves a thousand airs, 
and refused to visit other merchants' daughters, no, nor would they consent to be seen except with personal, a person of quality. They went every day to balls, plays, public walks, and always made game of the youngest sister for spending her time in reading or other useful employments, as it was well known that these young ladies would have large fortunes many great merchants wished to get them for wives, but they, but the two eldest always answered that for their part they had no thoughts of marrying anyone below a duke or an earl at least. Beauty, <coughs> Beauty had quite many offers as her sister, as many offers as her sisters, but she always answered with the greatest civility that though she was much obliged to her lovers, she would rather live some years longer with her father as she thought herself too young to marry. It happened that by some unlucky incident, the merchant suddenly lost all his fortune and had nothing left but a small cottage in the country. Upon, upon this, he said to his daughters, while the tears ran down his cheeks, My children, we must go now and dwell in the cottage and try to get a living by labor, for we have no other means of support. The two eldest replied that they do not know how to work and would not leave town, for they had lovers enough who would be glad to marry them, though they had no longer any fortune. But in this they were mistaken. For the lovers heard what had happened. They said, The girls were so proud and ill-tempered that all we wanted was their fortune. We are not sorry at all to see their pride brought down. Let them show off their heirs and their cows and sheep. But everyone pitied poor Beauty, because she was so sweet-tempered and kind to all, and several gentlemen offered to marry her, though she had not a penny. But Beauty was refused, and said she could not think of leaving her poor father in this trouble, as Beauty could not help sometimes crying in secret for the hardship she now obliged to suffer. But in a very short time she said to herself, All the crying in the world will do me no good, so I will try to be happy without a fortune. When they had removed when they had removed to their cottage, the merchant and his three sons employed themselves in ploughing and sowing the fields, and working in the garden. Beauty also did her part, for she rose by four o'clock every morning, lightened the fires and cleaned the house, and got ready for breakfast for the whole family. At first she found all this very hard, but she soon grew quite used to it, and though it no, was no hardship indeed, she soon grew quite used to it, and thought it no hardship indeed. The work greatly benefited her health when she had done. When she had done, she used to amuse herself with reading, playing her music, and singing while she spun. But her two sisters were at a loss on what to do to pass their time away. They had their breakfast in bed and did not rise till ten o'clock, then commonly walked out, but always found them with themselves soon very tired, when they would often sit down under a shady tree and grieve for the loss of the carriage and fine clothes and say to each other what a mean-spirited, poor, stupid creature our young sister is to be so content within this low, life, low way of life. But their father thought differently and loved and admired his youngest child more than ever. After they had lived in this manner for about a year, the merchant received a letter which informed him that one of his rich ships, which he had thought lost, had just come into port. 
This news made the two eldest sisters almost mad with joy, for they thought they should now leave the cottage and have all their finery again. When they found that their father must take a journey to the ship, the two eldest begged he would not fail to bring them back some new gowns, caps, rings, and all sorts of trinkets. But Beauty asked for nothing, for she said, for she thought in herself that the ship was worth would hardly buy everything her sisters wished for. Beauty said the merchant, How come you ask for nothing? What can I bring you, my child? Since you are so kind as to think of me, my dear father, she answered, I would be glad if you would bring me a rose, for we have none in our garden. Now Beauty did not indeed wish for a rose, nor anything else, but she only said that she might not afford her sisters, otherwise they would have said she wanted her father to praise her for desiring nothing. The merchant took leave of them and set out on his journey, but when he got to the ship, some persons went to the law with him about the cargo. After a deal of trouble, he came back to his cottage, as poor as he had left it, when he was within thirty miles of his home, and thinking of the joy of again meeting his children, he lost his way in the midst of a dense forest. It rained and snowed very hard, and besides the wind was so high as to throw him twice from his horse. Night came on, and he feared he should die of cold and hunger, or be torn to pieces by wolves that he heard howling around him. All at once he cast his eyes toward a long avenue, and saw that at the light's end, and saw at the end a light, but it seemed a great way off. He made his best way towards it, and found it came from a splendid palace, the windows of which were all blazing with light. It had great bronze gates, standing wide open, and fine courtyards, through which the merchant passed, but not a living soul was to be seen. There were stables, too, which this poor, which his poor starved horse, less scrumptious than himself, entered at once, and took a good meal of oats and hay. His master then tied him up, and walked toward the entrance, but still without seeing a single creature, he went on to a large dining parlor, where he found a good fire, and a table covered with some very nice dishes, but only one plate with a fork and with a knife and fork. As the snow and rain had wetted him to the skin, he went up to the fire to dry himself. I hope, said he, the master of the house or his servants will excuse me, for it is surely not to be long before I see them. He waited some time, but still nobody came, and at last the clock struck seven, struck eleven, and the merchant, being quite faint for the want of food, helped himself to a chicken and to a few glasses of wine, yet all the time trembling with fear. He sat till the clock struck twelve, and then, taking courage, began to think he might as well look about him. So he opened a door at the end of the hall, and went through it with a very, went into a very grand room, in which there was a fine bed, and as he was feeling very weary, he shut the door, took off his clothes, and got into it. It was ten o'clock in the morning before he awoke, and he was amazed to see he was amazed to see a handsome new suit of clothes laid ready for him instead of his own which were all torn and spoiled be he, to be sure said he to himself this place belongs to some good fairy who has taken pity on my ill luck he looked out of the window instead of the snow-covered wood where he had lost himself in the previous night 
he saw the most charmed arbors covered with all kinds of flowers returning to the hall where he had supper he found a breakfast table and ready prepared indeed my good fairy said the merchant aloud i am vastly obliged to you for your kind care of me he then made a hearty breakfast took his hat and was going to the stable to pay his horse a visit but he soon passed under one of the arbors which loaded with roses he thought of what beauty had asked him to bring her back to her and so he took a bunch of roses to carry home at the same moment he heard a loud noise and saw something toward him coming towards him and saw coming towards him a beast so frightened to look at that he was ready to faint with fear ungrateful man said the beast in the terrible voice i have saved your life by admitting you to my palace and in return you steal my roses which i value more than anything i possess but you shall atone for your you shall atone for your falter in a quarter of an hour the merchant fell on his knees and clasping his hands said sir i humbly beg your pardon i did not think it would offend you to gather a rose of offend you to gather a rose for one of my daughters who had entreated me to bring her one home do not kill me my lord i am not a lord but a beast replied the monster i hate false compliments so do not fancy that you can coax me by any such ways you tell me that you have daughters now i will suffer to escape if one of them come if one of them will come and die in your stead if not profuse that you will yourself return in three months and to be dealt with as i may choose the tender-hearted merchant had no thoughts of letting any of his daughters die for his sake but he knew that if he had seemed to accept the beast's terms he should at least have the pleasure of seeing them once again so he gave his promise and was told that he might set foot off as soon as he liked but said the beast i do not wish you to go back empty-handed go to the room you slept in and you will find a chest there filled with whatever you like best and i will have it taken to your house for you with the beast when the beast had said this he went away the good merchant left himself to left to himself began to consider what must die for he had no thought of breaking a promise had even made to the best he might as well have the comfort of leaving his children provided for he returned to the room he had slept in and found heaps of gold pieces lying about he filled the chest with them to the very brim and locked it and mounting his horse he left the palace as sorrowful as he had been glad when he had first beheld it the horse took a path across the forest of his own accord and in a few hours they reached the merchant's house his children came running around him but instead of kissing them with joy he could not help weeping as he looked at them he held in his hand the bunch of roses which he gave to beauty saying take these roses beauty but little do you think how dear they have cost your poor father and then he gave them a account of all that had been seen and heard in the palace of the beast the two eldest sisters now began to shed tears and to lay the blame upon beauty who they said would be the cause of her father's death see said she see said they what happens from the pride of this little wrench why not she ask for such things as we did but to be sure miss must not be like other people and that she would be the cause of her father's death and yet she does not shed a tear
It would be useless, replied Beauty, for my father shall not die. As the beast will accept one of his daughters, I will give myself up and be only too happy to prove my love for the best of my fathers. No, sister, said the three brothers with one voice, that cannot be. We will go and search for the monster, and either he or we will perish. Do not hope to kill him, said the merchant. His power is too far great, but beauty, young life, shall not be sacrificed. I am old and cannot expect to live much longer, so I shall but give up a few years of my life and shall be grieved for the sake of my children. Never, father, cried, cried beauty. If you go back to the palace, you cannot hinder my going after you. Though young I am, not over fond of life, and I would much rather be eaten up by the monster than die of grief for your loss. The merchant in vain tried to reason with beauty, who still who still obstinately kept her purpose, which in truth made her two sisters glad. They were very jealous of her, because everybody loved her. The merchant was so grieved at the thought of losing his child that he never once thought of the chest filled with gold, but at night, to his surprise, he found it standing by his bedside. He said nothing about this about his riches to his eldest daughters, for he knew very well it would be at once taken it would at once make them want to return to town. But he told Beauty his secret, and she then said that while he was away two gentlemen had been on a visit at her cottage, who had fallen in love with her two sisters. She entreated she entreated her father to marry them without delay, for she was so sweet-natured she only wished them to be happy. Three months went by, only too fast, and the merchant and beauty got ready to set out of the palace of the beast. Upon this the two sisters rubbed their eyes with an onion to make believe they were crying. Both the merchant and his sons were sons cried in earnest. Only beauty shed no tears. They reached the palace in a very few hours, and the horse, without bidding, went into the stable as before. The merchant and beauty walked toward the large hall, where they found a table covered with every dainty of two plates laid already. The merchant had very little appetite, but beauty, that she might be the better hide her grief, placed herself at the table and helped her father. She then began to eat herself, and though... All the time, to be sure, the beast had a mind to flatten her before she, before he ate her up. Since he had provided such good cheer for her, when they had done their supper, they heard a great noise, and the good old man began to bid his poor child farewell, for he knew it was the beast coming to them. When Beauty first saw that frightful form, she was very much terrified, but tried to hide her fear. The creature walked up to her, and eyed her all over then, and asked her in a dreadful voice if she had come quite of her own accord. Yes, said Beauty. Then you are a good girl, and I am very much obliged to you. This was such an astonishingly civil manner that Beauty's courage rose, but it sank again once the beast addressing the merchant desired him to leave the palace next morning, and never return to it again. And so good night, merchant, and good night, Beauty. Good night, beast, she answered as the monster shuffled out of the room. Ah, oh, my dear child, said the merchant, kissing his daughter, I am half dead already. At the thought of leaving you with this dreadful beast, you shall go back and let me stay in your place. No, said Beauty boldly, I will never agree to that. 
You must go home tomorrow morning. Then, <coughs> then they wished each other good night and went to bed, both of them thinking they could, they should not be able to close their eyes. But as soon as ever they had laid down, they fell into a deep sleep and did not awake till morning. Beauty dreamed that a lady came up to her, who said, I am very much pleased, Beauty, with the goodness you have shown, and being willing to give yourself and being willing to give your life to save that of your father, do not be afraid of anything. You shall not go without a reward. As soon as Beauty awoke, she told her father this dream, but though it gave him some comfort, he was a long time before he could be persuaded to leave the palace. At last Beauty succeeded in getting him safely away. When her father was out of sight, poor Beauty began to weep sorely. Still having naturally a courageous spirit, she soon resolved not to make her sad case still worse by sorrow, which she knew was vain, but to wait and be patient. She walked about to take a view of all the palace, and the elegance of every part of which much charmed her. But what was her surprise when she came to a door on which was written Beauty's room? She opened it in haste, and her eyes were dazzled with the splendor of taste of the apartment. What made her wonder more than all, the rest was a large library, filled with books and harpsichord, and many pieces of music. The beast surely does not mean to eat me up immediately, said she, since he takes care I shall not be at a loss on how to amuse myself. She opened the library and saw these verses written in letters of gold in the back of one of the books. Prudious lady, dry your tears. Here is no cause for sight or fears. Command as you freely as you may, for your command and I obey. Alas, said she, sighing, I wish I could only command a sight of my poor father, and to know what he is doing at this moment. Just then, by chance, she cast her eyes upon the looking-glass that stood her near, and in she saw a picture of her old home, and her father riding mournfully up to the door. Her sisters came out to meet him, and although they tried to look sorry, it was easy to see that in their hearts they were very glad. In a short time, all this picture disappeared, but it caused beauty to think that the beast beside her being very powerful was also very kind. About the middle of the day she found a table laid ready for her, and a sweet concert of music played, all the time she was dining, without seeing anybody, but at supper when she was going to seat herself at a table, she heard the noise of the beast, and could not help trembling with fear. Beauty, said he, will you give me leave to see you sup? That is, as you please, answered she, very much afraid. Not in the least, said the beast, you alone command in this place. If you should not like my company, you only need to say so, and I will leave you that moment. But tell me, Beauty, do you not think me very ugly? Why, yes, said she, for I cannot tell falsehood, but I think you are very good. Am I, sadly, replied the beast, yet besides being ugly, I am so very stupid. I know well enough that I am but a beast. But a beast. Very stupid people, said Beauty, are never aware of it themselves. At which kindly speech the beast looked pleased, and replied, not without an awkward sort of politeness, Pray do not let me detain you from supper, and be sure that you are well served. All you see is your own, and I should be deeply grieved if you wanted for anything. 
You are very kind, so kind, that I almost forgot. You are so ugly, said Beauty earnestly. Ah, yes, answered the beast, with a great sigh. I hope I am good-tempered, but I am still only a monster. There are so many monsters who wear the form of a man. It is better to have... It's better of the two to have a heart of a man and the form of a monster. I would thank you, Beauty, for this speech, but I am too senseless to say anything that would please you, returned the beast in a melancholy voice, and altogether he seemed so gentle and unhappy that Beauty, who had tendered, who had tenderest heart in the world, she felt her fear of him gradually vanish. She ate her supper with good appetite and conversed in her own sensible and charming way, till at last when the beast rose to depart he terrified her more than ever by saying abruptly in his gruff voice beauty will you marry me now beauty frightened as she was would speak only the exact truth besides her father had told her that the beast liked only to have the truth spoken to him so she answered in a very firm tone no beast he did not get into a passion or anything but sigh deep and depart when beauty found herself alone she began to pity for the poor beast. Oh, she said, what a sad thing it is, for he should be so frightful since he is so good-tempered. Beauty lived three months in this palace, well pleased. The beast came to see her every night, and talked with her while she suppered. And though what he said was not very clever, yet as she saw him in every day some new goodness instead of dreading the time of his coming, Soon she began to continually looking at her watch to see if it was nine o'clock, for that was the hour of which he never failed to visit her. One thing only vexed her, which was that every night before he went away, he always made it a rule to ask her if she would be his wife, and seemed very much grieved at her steadfast replying no. At last one night she said to him, "'You wonder me greatly, beast, by forcing me to refuse you so often,' I wish I could take such a liking to you as to agree to marry you, but I must tell you plainly that I do not think it will ever happen. I shall always be your friend, so try to let that content you. I must, sighed the beast, for I know enough how frightful I am, but I love you better than myself, yet I think I am very lucky in your being pleased to stay with me. Now promise, Beauty, that you will never leave me. Beauty would almost have agreed to this, so sorry was she for him, but she had that day seen in her magic glass, which, looked at, which she looked at constantly, that her father was dying of grief for her sake. Alas, said she, I long so much to see my father, that if you do not give me leave to visit him, I shall break, I shall break my heart. I would rather break mine, Beauty, answered the beast. I will send you to your father's cottage. You shall stay there, and your poor beast shall die of sorrow. No, said Beauty, crying, I love you too well to be the cause of your death. I promise to return in a week. You have shown me that my sisters are married and my brothers are gone for soldiers, so that my father is all left alone. Let me stay a week with him. You shall find yourself with him tomorrow morning, replied the beast, but mind, do not forget your promise. When you wish to return, you have nothing to do but put your ring on a table. When you go to bed, goodbye, Beauty. The beast sighed, and as he said these words, Beauty went to bed, very sorry to see him so much grieved. When she awoke in the morning, she found herself in her father's cottage. She rang the bell that was at her bedside, and the servant entered. But as soon as she saw Beauty, the woman gave a loud shriek, upon which the merchant ran upstairs, 
and when he beheld his daughter, he ran to her and kissed her a hundred times. At last Beauty began to remember that she had brought no clothes with her to put on, but the servant told her that she had just found in the next room a large a large chest full of dresses and trimmed all over with gold and adorned with pearls and diamonds. Beauty in her own mind thanked the beast for his kindness and put on the plainest gown she could find among them all. She then desired the servant to lay rest aside, for she intended to give them to her sisters. But as soon as she had spoken these words, the chest was gone out of sight in a moment. Her father then suggested perhaps the beast chose to help to keep chose for her to keep them all for herself, and as soon as he had said this, they saw the chest standing again in the same place. While Beauty was dressed while Beauty was dressing herself, a servant brought word to her that her sisters were come with their husbands to pay her a visit. They both lived unhappily with the gentleman they had married. The husbands of the eldest was very handsome, but was so proud of this that he thought nothing else of from morning till night, and did not care a pin for the beauty of his wife. The second had married a man of great learning, but he made no use of it, except to tor torment and affront all his friends, and his wife more than any of them. The two sisters were already were ready to burst with spite when they saw Beauty dressed like a princess and looking so very charming. All the kindness that she showed them was of no use, for they were vexed more than ever. When she told them how happy she was, she lived at the palace of the beast. The spiteful creatures went themselves into the, into the garden, where they cried to think of her good fortune. Why should the little wrench be better off than we, said they, we are much handsomer than she is. Sisters, said the eldest, a thought has just come into my head. Let us try to keep her here longer than the week for which the beast gave her leave, and then he will be so angry that perhaps when she goes back to him he will eat her up in a moment. That is well thought of, answered the other, but do not but do but to do this we must pretend to be very kind. Then they went to join her in the cottage where they showed her so much false love that beauty could not help crying for joy. When the week was ended, the two sisters began to pretend such grief at the thought of leaving them that she agreed to stay a week more, but all that time beauty could not help fretting for sorrow that she knew her absence would give her poor beast, for she tenderly loved him, and much wished for his company again. Among all the grand and clever people she saw, she found nobody who was as half so sensible, so affectionate, so thoughtful, or so kind. The tenth night of her being at the college, she dreamed she was in the garden of the palace, that the beast lay dying on the grass plot, and with his last breath put her in his mind of her promise, and laid his death to her forsaking him. Beauty awoke in great fright, and she burst into tears. I am not wicked, said she to behave so ill to a beast who has shown me much kindness? Why will I not marry him? I am sure I should be more happy with him than any, than my sisters are with their husbands. He shall not be wretched any longer on my account, for I should do nothing but blame myself all the rest of my life. Then she rose, put her ring on the table, and got into bed again, and soon fell asleep, 
In the morning, she, with joy, found herself in the palace of the beast. She dressed herself carefully, that she might please him with the better. And though she had ne never known a day pass so slowly, at last the clock struck nine, but the beast did not come. Beauty, dreading, lest she might truly have caused his death, ran from room to room, calling out, Beast, dear beast, but there was no answer. At last she remembered her dream, rushed to the grass plot, and there saw him lying apparently dead beside the fountain. Forgetting all of his ugliness, she threw herself upon his body, and finding his heart still beating, she fetched some water and sprinkled it over him, weeping and sobbing the while. The beast opened his eyes. You forgot your promise, beauty, and so I am determined to die, for I could not live without you. I have starved myself to death, but I shall die content since I have seen your face once more. No, dearest beast, cried beauty passionately, you shall not die. You shall live to be my husband. I thought it was only friendship I felt for you, but now I know it was love. The moment beauty had spoken these words, the palace was suddenly lighted up, and all kinds of rejoicings were heard around them, none of which were none of which she noticed, but hung over her dear beast with the utmost tenderness. At last, unable to restrain herself, she dropped her head over her hands, covered her eyes, and cried for joy. And when she looked up again, the beast was gone, and in his stead she saw at her feet a handsome, graceful young prince, who thanked her with the tenderest expression for having freed him from enchantment. "'But where is my poor beast? I only want him, and nobody else,' sobbed Beauty. "'I am he,' replied the prince. "'A wicked fairy condemned me to this form, and forbade me to show that I was any wit or sense, till a beautiful lady should consent to marry me. You alone, dearest Beauty, judged me neither by my looks nor my talents, but by my heart alone. Take it then, and all that I have beside for all is yours.' Beauty, full of surprise, but very happy, suffered, suffered the prince to lead her to his palace. When she found her father and sister, who had been brought there by the fairy, laid, the fairy lady whom she had seen in a dream the first night she came, Beauty, said the fairy, you have chosen well, and you have your reward, for a true heart is better than either good looks or clever brains. As for you, ladies, she turned to the two elder sisters, I know all your ill deeds, but I have no worse punishment for you than to see your sister happy. You shall stand as statues at the door of her palace, and when you repent of and have amended your faults, you shall become women again. But to tell you the truth, I very much fear that you will remain statues forever." Well, this was a longer episode of the Fortations Life to Take podcast. I will be releasing the next episode. We are getting very close to the end of this book. It might be uh, maybe two more episodes. I like to keep them 45 minutes to an hour. This one's a little longer. But I want to thank everyone for coming out. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fortations, and if you'd like to help you can visit FortationsDonation.com where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.